Welcome to another exciting episode of Fried Friday. I'm Adam Spitz. And I'm Dennis Lifchak. And we have uh, two exciting guests. They almost don't need introduction, but we have Dom Fisher and Brian Ward. Dom's been the founder of Fishnick, and Brian has been in the industry for a long time, doing um, a lot of work for food service equipment reports. Did I get that right, Brian? Yes, yes, that's yeah. right. I was one of the co-founders there, and I was there until uh, 2012, and I've been consulting in the restaurant equipment industry since then. A variety of a variety of projects. <laughs> And how long have you known Don? Oh, wow. Well, I knew Don, I think, sh- shortly before we we started Food Service Equipment Reports in 1996. Mm-hmm. I think it was, you know, prior to that, the industry media weren't doing a lot with uh, technology and utility efficiency. So I knew of Don, but Don, I, I'm trying to remember when I first actually met you. Do you yeah, remember? I don't know. It was probably at the restaurant show in Chicago. Might have been uh, tied yeah. in with that. Yeah. And uh, uh, we had our national advisory group that would have dovetailed with the stuff we were doing. I mean, I we, we joke yeah. about the fact that, that back when we first met, it was I was glad to run into you because now we didn't have to start a magazine and you didn't have to start a lab, right? So we were kind of. Exactly. We, we collaborated for a lot of years with a handshake, right? You know, all that we would do testing, and you'd publish it. So it was a, it was a old handshake type relationship that uh, the Food Service Technology Center had with uh, Food Service Equipment Reports. Yeah, it, it, and it was literally a handshake. I remember that when we were uh, the summer before we started FER. Um, we decided we wanted to go, you know, in a, in a different direction. We wanted to differentiate from uh, uh, several of us had been at Food Service Equipment and Supplies magazine, and that was uh, um, that magazine was really more focused on the channel issues. And uh, I was there for ten years, and you know, got to know a lot of the dealers and the rep groups and the consultants, and uh, learned a lot about their roles in the industry. And then in 96, we wanted to do something more technical and really target it for the chains because, uh, the, you know, the chain chains wanted to have their own in-house people specifying equipment. And there was no, you know, central place for them to go to get data, to, you know, to, to get basic specs to compare competing models in a particular category. And so that's that's why we started FER. The idea was we would we would uh, uh, try to follow the model of the automotive industry magazines, car and driver, and so on. You know, uh, not that uh, one piece of equipment is is the best and the others are not, but you know, usually each piece of equipment is differentiated. It's they all have their own strengths and weaknesses, and it's a matter of matching the equipment to your application. So so that's that's what our goal was, and. And, uh, and we were looking for technical information and the FSTC and Don Fisher were the place for sure. So I remember when we called and said, hey, we have this crazy idea for a magazine. 
can we come talk about it? <laughs> but, you know, right at the beginning, you came up against the politics of the world or the politics of industry. And, you know, people people loved it if their appliance was number one on the on the test, but they weren't that happy with number two or three or four. And, and you, you realize that, you know, we had a we often thought ourselves as consumer reporting. Right. But you realize that that wasn't the way to get there. Kind of like Energy Star. You, you, everything was in. You, you qualified things as better, best, and excellent. You didn't knock the wheels off something because it wasn't going to get you anywhere, right? You had to kind of like the automotive magazines, right. right? These guys relied on the manufacturers to advertise in their magazine and to supply cars for test, right? So it, it was a quite a tightrope you walked yeah. down in in uh, on the on the magazine side, right, Brian? Yeah, yeah. And in the beginning, uh, I remember we did. Uh, satisfaction surveys, you know, and we create, and we indexed the results. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, somebody would say, say you'd be talking about reach and refrigeration. Uh And there was a particular model, particular manufacturer that maybe had, uh, uh, you know, maybe, maybe the, uh, the rails just, fell apart or cracked or were hard to work with, you know, getting the shelving in and out. And so they, you know, the, that manufacturer would get dinged on that. And then of course, you know, that brings down their overall score. And then there was a lot of, uh, you know, wailing and gnashing of uh-huh. teeth. So, and, and, and it was true that we had small samplings. So we started realizing that, that, you know, it was causing a lot of hassle and we were having trouble getting a legitimate sampling. Yeah. So we, we, we quit with the scorecards, but we just focused on differentiating among the specs and the implications for if you were using a piece of equipment for one type of menu versus another, you know. So how does it feel, I have to ask, how does it feel to be two of the information uh, originators, powerhouse originators, leaders, um, from a publication side and from a technical resource side, um, everyone I talk to in the industry, they know FER, they know the FSTC. You guys were at the fundamental, you're the fundamental reason why both FER and FSTC exist, uh, in, among others, of course, but you guys are really the foundation. How does that make you feel to see both the respective organizations grow and prosper um, for, for so many years? Even at, even if your hands are it's very satisfying, you know. I mean, not often you have an opportunity in a career in a professional venue to achieve your goals for you know, actually achieve your goals, you know. You know, lots of times you get involved on a on a research project that survives one or two or three years and then funding dries up and off you go, right? Well we we went down this pathway that was to develop standard test methods for food service equipment, which had nothing when we started in 1986. And, uh, you know, it was a tough go. I'm talking to Brian, you know, it was took, you know, this is the beginning. This is the, this is the legacy for Energy Star, but boy, it was a tough go. It took us our first test method, first development of a standardized test method for the performance of, uh, Griddles uh, was the first test method, and then also the followed by one for fryers. And, and obviously, McDonald's, who sat on the PG&E advisory board, had a, had some influence there because those were their two.
primary cooking appliance engines in their restaurant, right? And, and but it took a while, and then we knocked on the door of ASTM as a as a mechanism for publishing these documents, and and uh, off it goes. But we were in uncharted territory, and uh, and it took uh, support from the manufacturers to loan us the equipment, and uh, and uh, you know the rest history. But it was five two test methods in five years to get published by ASTM. At the end of 10 years, we had 10 test methods. And at the end of 20 years, it was 30 plus and, and still going, right, Dennis? I don't know what the tally is now, but probably about 30, 30 plus test methods. And, and, uh, and, and it was, you know, when, at the beginning, manufacturers, you know, the project lead for uh, uh, PG&E was a woman by the name of Betty Ferland, Betty Davis now, and, and she was a food service uh, she was a food service person in, in, for the utility, and, and she was aggressive. And, and you know, manufacturers, when Betty said, "Could we, could you loan us a, a griddle for testing?" And she talked to Wolf or to Garland, and, and of course they said yes, right? So manufacturers, just through their uh, marketing initiatives, would loan PG&E equipment for tests. They didn't really care about the results or anticipate the results, and until the results started to happen and all of a sudden people started to care that the people that built a better mousetrap really started to like these uniform test procedures that gave them hard data, third party data. And, you know, it was it wasn't until about 20 years into our program that um, that we started to get traction from the end user side and the manufacturer's side. And uh, and as I said, the rest history, you know, this vision that there would be a labeling program sometime that would that would be like Energy Star, and guess what? Energy Star decided to move into commercial. And uh, commercial equipment, when when we started in '86 on this campaign, you know, the industry relative to energy efficiency was a decade or two behind the rest of building systems. Right? I mean, we were into uh, pretty elaborate energy efficient technologies for big for buildings. Right? And the restaurant industry was just out of sight, out of mind. Right? And uh, what kept us going in the project was some of the competitive gas versus electric issues, right? They they wanted our data to be able to convince their customer to buy electric or convince their customer to buy gas. And so that that uh, uh, fuel competition in the industry was what kept our funding base going because for a while there, energy efficiency wasn't that popular. But we stuck to it and we made it. Um, Brian, any on, on, input from your side on that? Yeah. On what you feel you published? No, I'm just, <laughs> I'm just, you know, having having flashbacks. You were ten years into it already when we started uh, Fer yeah. Magazine in '96, and I remember, uh, y- you know, you shipped me a bunch of standardized test methods. I, I, there was a big heavy yeah. box, like 50 pounds worth of binders. Right. And I started going through them and, uh, and, and it's, you know, like a lot of things in life, the more you learn, the more interesting it becomes. And I went page after page after page and I thought it was great. And, you know, we started uh, running some magazine articles, sort of summaries of some of those early standardized mm-hmm. tests. Yeah. And, uh, and and I remember, uh, you know, you said for a while energy efficiency wasn't uh, wasn't that popular, and and boy, that was the truth. I mean, when we started in '96, really sort of blowing that horn, we were 
at that time, I think we were ahead of the chains in the sense that they still were not focused on utility efficiency. Their big concerns, just like just like anybody else in food service at the time, was uh, uh, the two big parts of their overhead were la- uh, labor and food costs. And energy, you know, was a smaller slice of that pie, and they didn't have a good way to measure it. They didn't know what they were spending. They didn't know what they were using. So they focused on labor and food costs, right? And then this new magazine came along. And we were really pushing the importance of energy. Uh, well, it was mainly energy efficiency at that time. We didn't really start chasing, you know, water until a little mm-hmm. bit later, right? Mm-hmm. But was it was was it like 1999? I think when California had the rolling yep. brownouts, yeah, I mean, uh, the Enron thing and all that. Yeah. Well, and I do remember the very next NRA show after that. I went to, uh, NRA has these executive study groups, and one of them, the acronym was MACO for Multi-Unit Architects, Engineers, and Construction Officers. So those were, you know, the equipment and layout and construction people. And, And where the previous year, the chain people were really still focused on, you know, they were focused on, on, uh, uh, food costs and labor, it was like a light switch had gone on or, or gone off at that meeting room in Chicago that year. All of a sudden, this room full of chain guys was murmuring about energy. We have to do something about energy. You know, California was scary. We, we, we have to start paying attention. Yeah. And it was really interesting. I mean, it really was. They did a 180 yeah. because of that rough time that California had with electricity. Yep, yep, yep. All of a sudden, our phone started to ring off the hook. Um, you know, one of the one of the attributes of these ASTM test methods that secured them in the long haul was was the fact that they were a total performance. You know, they were there for total performance. You know, the pounds per hour of cooking capacity and the temperature uniformity and all the uh, attributes of an appliance that could be documented, right? And and that's what they really wanted. They they wanted to be able to show how fast their oven could cook potatoes or whatever, right? And so the, the fact that we just didn't do energy test procedures, they were performance test procedures, was was the the security of of the of the program in the long haul, right? And as I said, energy came and went a few times. That one with the, with the crisis, and then. Uh, but people did start to care, and uh, uh, it, uh, you know, as I said, uh, Adam, it was it's really, really neat to be able to see your footprint on the industry, right? The impact that you had, right, and, and the legacy. It's it's just mm-hmm. not something you get to do very often, right? So it's kind of cool. Yeah. And, uh, and I remember in the early days, uh, you you guys had to spend a, a, an awful lot of. Uh, uh, energy. You had to put a lot of effort into explaining to to people what equipment performance meant, and and making them understand that uh, you know in this case in this industry, efficiency is yep. performance because you're not yep. you're not you're not measuring consumption yep. against yep. time. You're measuring consumption against yep. food production. And that was a, a, a so. Um, a story that often got spun, right? Oh, you don't want that energy efficiency crap. 
energy efficient appliance, you need yeah. throughput, you need production capacity. And, and you know, in all the yeah. years, you know, there was a pretty strong correlation between the energy efficiency and the throughput, the production capacity of a piece of equipment, because they were simply putting more energy, a greater proportion of the energy into the cooking cavity, cooking surface, yada, yada. But that was a fallacy that was out there and, and uh, people selling the high input rated appliances like the cheap fryers, you know, 140,000 BTUs per hour. That's what you needed, right? And, um, that you didn't need that. but Yeah, uh, yeah. And half of them are going yeah, up the flu. Yeah, but a lot of... Uh, you know, there's a lot of commodity-based products in food service, right? And, and uh, it was a long haul. There were a few innovators in the industry. And, boy, being a, 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 an inventor in food service, that was a tough haul because you had to talk somebody into buying it, right? And, and uh, you just didn't knock on the door mm-hmm. of McDonald's, right? And, and so the equipment, ener- the energy efficiency wasn't necessarily ingrained into cooking equipment. They you know, the base efficiency of gas appliances was about 30%. That's pathetic. 30% of the energy you bought in BTUs of gas were only went into the food product, right? Very inefficient and, uh, you know, huge standby losses. You know, you get broilers sitting there at 100,000 BTUs now or just, you know, the energy cost of an underfired broiler was what an annual energy cost of an underfired broiler was more than its purchase price, right? You were up in the three, four thousand dollars of gas consumed, right? But people didn't know that this oh, equipment yeah. didn't have its own little meter. You weren't taking your appliances down to the gas pumps and gassing them up. Restaurants knew they had a had a thirty thousand dollar gas bill and a seventy thousand dollar electric bill, but they didn't know where it was going, right? They didn't have that meter on the equipment, and and so with our performance data, we were able to model this and actually come up with our cost calculators. So it was a it was a campaign, Adam. It was a campaign, all right. And as I said... <laughs> but you you, you, you succeeded, yeah. oh, though. Yeah. That's, the, that's yeah. the beauty of it, and that's the part we're celebrating yeah. and today. And the fact that it's, Energy Star embraced our procedures and, and uh, it is just a dream come true, right? And, and, uh, and uh, we had fun, too. That was the other thing. Hey, Brian, we had a... You know, the food service industry, and, and you guys know that from getting involved as engineers in the food service industry, but it was a part, it was fun. I mean, you go to the restaurant show in Chicago, I mean, we, we wined and dined and, and uh, we partied hard. Oh, we had boy, some of yeah. those, and after we had their meetings down in, in New Orleans, and boy, that, that industry could party, let me tell you. And so, you know, being a, being a, a, a conservative engineer, I was able to help them with their partying. Yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> we survived. We got livers still, Brian. Oh, yeah. But it was, you know, hospitality yeah. was the name of the game, right? And and and, and the difference between a, a, the restaurant show or the NAFM show and an ASHRAE meeting, they were completely different, right? One had your serious engineers at it. The other one had your party animals. But... Yeah, there, there really is some kind of a, a communal yeah. aspect yeah. to to the food service yeah. industry. People are gregarious. Uh, they like to entertain. They're, you know, because to one extent or another, everybody's in that business yeah. anyway. So when you get 100,000 people together in Chicago yeah. at the NRA yeah. show, or, or, you know, 20 or maybe 20,000 of the largest equipment specifiers in the industry at, at the NAFM shows, yeah. right? Then boy, you know when when the show floor closes at five yeah. o'clock, it's 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 out. Yeah, we want to take a customer goes. out to dinner. I mean, you made your reservations 
for next year when you left the city, right? <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, but yeah. wow, it was. Uh, but you know, the industry. You mentioned Mako. You know that multi-unit engineers and architects of food service equipment. There was a lot of uh, yes. a lot of collaboration within the industry, right? They they didn't feel they were competing at that level on the what what rooftop unit you specced out or what hoods, and so they came together and they would have manufacturers give them presentations on their products, on their innovations and stuff. And then after the manufacturer left the room, they would just litted they would share what they thought about that right there was no hiding it right they a lot yeah, of yeah. uh unlike yeah. the uh, you know the the supermarket industry way more conservative than the food service industry right mcdonald's helped us with our project with no problem you know we uh, mm -hmm. uh, they had an energy tour conservation manual that we secured as students working at the university of manitoba and that became a template for our our national energy conservation manual for food service people so a lot of respect for mcdonald's i mean joe knapp with the uh, on the ventilation they had their own ventilation lab right and uh, uh we were mm -hmm. i remember going out there yep, to woodale, yep, woodale to visit you guys when yeah woodale illinois when you guys were operating it yep. there in illinois before yep. you dismantled it and yeah. then you well it's kind of ironic i was a uh, lead researcher for a, pro a canadian program that was we centered under the university of manitoba we had a program called we were running the restaurant sector for a program called building energy technology transfer program and it was a initiative where different lead agencies compiled our, our mandate was to compile energy efficiency knowledge for a given industry and we had the food service sector and that's what got me invited down to Palo Alto to an EPRI meeting uh, several years later. But uh, one of the campaigns, I flew to Chicago and uh, met, met Joe Knapp with McDonald's and he invited, us, invited me out to their lab and let me take photographs, slides, because we were putting together these educational programs. And, oh, yeah, no problem. Take pictures of whatever you wanted, right? All their proprietary work. And, and then the irony behind it was I was headed to Cleveland to photograph the appliance development work that was being done by AGA Research Laboratories with funding from GRI, Gas Research Institute, uh, a lot of it for McDonald's. And, and it took me all day to get clearance to take photographs, right? So, but McDonald's, no problem, take your pictures. But that's where, and that was 40 years ago, that was, they were developing the infrared burners and the infrared burners that were used in fryers and used in griddles. And, and uh, I was mentioning to, Dennis and, and Adam earlier, we were talking about the fact that there was a pulse combustion burner technology, which did did uh, end up working in furnaces, uh, residential furnaces, but just didn't give enough incremental kit to the efficiency equation to, to secure itself. Right. I mean, you're, you can and that that incremental cost of energy efficient technologies has been the plague of our industry. That's just the, one of the biggest hurdles we have. Right, Brian? That cost first cost. Oh. Yeah, and absolutely. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, while you're talking, I was thinking back to, you know, in a lot of ways, the industry was um, in its Wild West days, I think, in the 70s and 80s. There was such, it, it's hard for anybody to imagine today that there was such a dearth of reliable, you know, third party measurement of anything. I mean, I, I remember... Uh -huh. Uh, back in the late eight, late 80s, I think it was, or maybe early 90s, I was doing, I was at 
food service equipment and supplies magazine. And I was doing a basic spec story. Uh, and I do mean basic, right? At that time on, on, uh, specifying kitchen exhaust mm-hmm. hoods. And I, I had interviewed four different, you know, chief engineers at four of the different big, uh, hood manufacturers. And now the, these guys had all gone to the same schools. They, they all were aware of the same science, right? But without an ability to measure things, they each had slightly different opinions about prioritizing, you know, what's important, what's not yeah. important. And, they, and I was getting conflicting information from, you know, four guys who should have been pretty much on the same page. And that's when I started realizing, you you know, you can't even have the conversation if nobody knows, if, if nobody yeah, can measure yeah. A lot of techno speak worked into the marketing, lit, marketing literature and, and uh, yes. the challenge, right? The uh, kitchen ventilation was the black sheep of the HVAC industry, right? It was just brushed aside by organizations like ASHRAE, you know, American Society for Heating, Refrigeration, and Air Conditioning, you know. And we started the game. Where we, and what, what was the reason for that, that Don? What was, the, what was the reason for that? Why, why would... Uh, well, cr- Kitchen ventilation be the quote unquote. Well, I don't know, you know, the ASHRAE uh, structure, but you know, they have their handbooks, right? That are the Bible of HVAC systems, right? From refrigeration to whatever, right? And and each one of those chapters in that handbook, which is you know on every mechanical engineer's desk in the country that does building systems, and and these this the imp, the information in that in each of those chapters was a product of a of a technical group an advisor or a committee right a technical committee that sat around and and documented you know shared shareable information and put together there was no technical group within ashray that overlap had had any food service knowledge right and uh, and so you know we we one of our <laughs> private campaign Joan Abdon Fisher campaign was to get a technical committee in ASHRAE to take on the challenge of kitchen ventilation and to start a kitchen ventilation technical committee right and and, uh, and just like Energy Star that committee now has 30 members it's one of the most active committees in ASHRAE right but it was it was the black sheep right it just wasn't people and there was a people didn't understand that you had a hot process right that Convective loads coming off appliances weren't the same as the the capturing fumes off a fume hood or off a, a, a chemical process, right? And so, yeah, it was square one again, right? And that was my that was my original experience was on kitchen ventilation and the potential for exhaust air heat recovery. And, and uh, boy, it was a long cap. Demand control ventilation was a lifelong campaign of mine, right? Why are we running hoods at a hundred percent? hundred percent of the time, right? And, and guess what? That technology made it. It was a tough one because, um, you know, it was not cheap. And and Brian and I were talking yesterday that you know the the problem with a lot of these technologies they weren't cheap. The the payback hurdle was huge, but the retrofit cost to retrofit a demand control ventilation system is you know two to four times the cost of to incorporate it within a new design, right? So. The first cost of, of technologies in equipment uh, was a huge, huge impediment to to market adoption, right? Uh, and uh, and then you had technologies that didn't work that well, right? There was a huge element of snake oil wound itself into this thing, right? Once people all of a sudden decided that energy efficiency was important, boy, we had every claim there was going, right? So Brian saw that a lot oh, at yeah. your end, right, Brian? 
I yes, yes, I did. Yeah, one you know one of the fun things about working in the media, right? Is you yeah you, you can't just quote somebody saying what they're saying. You you really have to have a way to check yeah. it. You know, uh, like I said, because different people had uh, different opinions mixed in with their facts, and uh, um, and so yeah, I was constantly uh, doing little you know side uh, consult consulting uh, with somebody else to say hey, you know this is this is what so and so gave me for this story but it, i'm not sure it's technically correct you know can you take a look at this and sure enough and it, but that's a that's a whole nother story yeah. uh, you know figuring out how to how to ride the uh, the balance beam with that stuff because a lot of well meaning people can give you faulty information and and that you know, and you don't want to be the one spreading it all across the industry. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that's what makes a good yeah, reporter: yeah. fact checking, right? But yeah. you know, you got yeah. into that area of litigation. You had to be really careful, right? You know, the little little guys like us, you know, we could be taken out, and the big guys like the utilities, you know, they could be taken to the cleaners. On uh, you know, Edison, SoCal Edison lost a court case. All anecdotal, but they lost a big court case because they had published data that said something didn't work as they as claimed right and, and they lost the court case on on constraint of trade right the fact that their objective data that shot the le- shot the legs off this uh, product um, they they lost the case not because the data was wrong but because they were constricting that manufacturer's ability to, to make a living by by exposing his snake oil, right? And so, you know, you got that. You know, we once in a while get the letter from a manufacturer saying, you know, stop that. You know, don't do not publish, right? And so you kind of <laughs> had to weasel along. And as I said, everything was always better, best, and excellence. You know, you never tore the wheels off. We didn't have that uh, strength of consumer reports. I still don't know how they get away with everything they do, but they did and they succeeded. Yeah. Yep. And, you know, like, like in the case of the, the big multi-unit specifiers, the chain people, right? They they are full-time specifiers, and because they buy a lot of stuff, they have heard, you know, everybody knocks on their door, and they have heard every story there is. They've been around the block yeah. a few times, so so they can kind of read between the lines, and and uh, I know, like you said, you know, it's a. Uh, uh, better, best, and unbelievable. Um, but you know, when we used to find a piece of any, uh, you know, inexpensive equipment that obviously wasn't meant to be durable for a long time, the thing is, you know, if, if something's really bad, it it washes out of the industry pretty quickly. But if if it's a band aid solution, if if there's a legitimate role for something to get you through the next two weeks. You know, you. I mean, you could fairly say it's a great light duty alternative. Yeah. You know, and the chain guys knew right away what light duty alternative mm-hmm. meant. Yeah. So, so anyway, but you know, like I say, that's that's probably a whole nother uh, topic for 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 another session. But um, yeah, I, I remember. Go ahead. No, you know, I'm going to let Dennis chime in. Um, Dennis, what, what were you going to ask? I think you guys probably saw a lot of different technologies, uh, good and bad. Um, and I, I know 
Don was saying that some manufacturers were excited to submit their equipment for testing or have have it written about in the magazine. Uh, would you say there were manufacturers on the opposite end uh, that uh, pushed back and didn't really want uh, people evaluating their technology or um, making any regulatory com uh, comparisons? Oh, absolutely. There were, you know, the commodity side of the industry, which was the industry, but you know, you, you built a, thousand dollar fryer and you didn't want somebody out there telling people that it was 30 percent efficient because and, and and couldn't and only had 50 pounds pounds per hour production capacity because you your marketing literature said it was efficient right this the claims were whatever people wanted right and we were out there you know uh, busting their claims and and so yeah there was and a lot of big guys didn't have perform, you know, performance equipment, right? So, you know, things like the connectionless steamer. I mean, it was, it was, it made it in the marketplace because its installation costs and operating costs were so cheap, right? It really did work, right? And uh, you know, and different products were different aspects of the technology succeeded or didn't succeed. Uh, Things like induction, you know, induction cooktops. I thought that technology would have would have developed and, and uh, got traction. It's, it's been around for 50 years. I thought it would have, you know, taken over, but it didn't. It, it still fights to become a mainstream wet cooking platform in, in restaurants, right? The, the gas electric thing is another one is people think, oh, cooking with gas and and they don't totally understand what they're saying. The range top, the gas range top, and the underfired charboiler are they demand gas. Gas is their their cornerstone, right? But an oven, the average chef doesn't know whether his oven is gas or electric, right? And so when they say we, we like gas, they they don't really know what they're saying, right? Electric fryers were actually a a choice by many people because they were so easy to clean and didn't have the fires associated with it, right? So. Each appliance category is its own animal. You know, it's like the difference between a, a heat pump and a water heater. And so you just don't overlay a technology like infrared burners don't apply to uh, everything, right? Uh, you know, uh, speaking of infrared burners, we had the condensing water heaters that were around 50 years ago introduced to the market and they weren't all that reliable and uh, they were efficient. And, and uh, boy, that was a, tough product to get the food service industry to embrace because it was more expensive, right? And, and uh, you know, some of these things like demand variable speed exhaust, I mean, they, they're a no brainer technically, but just didn't, didn't, uh, the accountants didn't like them. They just put too much money on the, on the cost of construction. And then that's another fact you saw that Brian was, People would spec out a piece of equipment that they knew was they were going to. But some of the chains would do this because they they spec a piece of equipment that they knew was crap, and they were going to have to replace it with another piece of equipment. But it was its first cost was so low, and it kept construction costs down. Right, that was a huge campaign. The the people designing restaurants and building the restaurants weren't paying the energy bill of the franchisee. So their goal was to build exactly. the facility as cheap as possible, not to make it cheap to operate right so there were mixed mixed incentives there 
Jesus. Exactly. And, and, you know, there's a big difference uh, in the, in the mentality at the corporate level where they have the resources and, and they have a, you know, a, a corporate discipline about projecting over a longer term. That's real different from the local franchisee who has one or two stores and, and, you know, he, he bought himself an expensive car and he sure isn't going to put any more dollars into the kitchen than he has to. Uh-huh. Right. Uh, so, and I, I know, uh, I remember years ago, Mark Fink saying, uh, we were talking about probably about, about yeah. boilers. Right. But, uh, his point was that, you know, at headquarters, they understand return on investment and they understand the long-term savings of efficiency and, but Mark's point was, well, now we have to turn around and convince all those franchisees because there is a first class, yeah. right? And it, and it will pay off, but it's very hard convincing smaller operators who are like, like independent restaurant operators. They tend not to be profit managers. They're cash yeah. flow managers, yeah. you know? So they're, they don't, they just can't get a handle on the long-term profit idea of, 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 you know, investing on the first cost. Yeah. The cost effectiveness equation was complex, right. And, and had, depends on what perspective we were coming at it. And, and, you know, we were providing hard data so you could actually calculate the energy cost of a piece of equipment or the operating costs. Right. And, and, and yeah. use metering, you know, putting meters on equipment in, in, in facilities. That's expensive stuff, right? That's an expensive way of doing it when you can simply take lab data and model something, right? But people didn't understand that. Yeah, yeah. it was, you know, if we could do it again, boy, I could take some shortcuts, you know. <laughs> I think we could do it a lot faster, Adam, <laughs> instead, of, instead of a lifetime. I might have done it in half a lifetime. <laughs> Well, knowing what yeah. you know now, sure. It's kind of like that first girlfriend you could have had. You know, I could have, oh boy, if I knew what I knew now, I, oh, I'd be, I'd be a superstar. <laughs> yep, me, Donnie. <laughs> oh. And it's always, it's always been a big challenge getting the information into the, uh, into the same room where the decision makers are. I ran into a thing some years ago. I was doing a, uh, I was doing a new technology breakout session for, an association of, of uh, purchasers. This was in conjunction with the National Restaurant Association show. And, uh, and so I went into this, and this was the breakout room now. This was the smaller group that actually wanted to know about equipment because, you know, most, most purchasing managers spend most of their time on produce contracts and proteins and stuff like that, right? They don't spend most of their job on equipment. Well, I walked into this room, and before we started the session, I said, you know, how many of you know how much you're paying for a therm? And there were like two people out of 50 or whatever yeah. it was, you know. <laughs> and how many of you know what you're paying for a kilowatt hour? And then finally, I wrapped, you know, so I had like two hands and then two hands. And I said, how many of you have ever seen your energy yeah. bill. And, 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 you know, there's the big disconnect right there, right? The people making the purchasing decisions don't see yep. the bills. Yep. Yeah. It's that old thing. So. You can't control what you don't measure, right? Or don't, uh, can't see, yeah. right? And, yeah. and uh, you know, you know, technology that that's, 
that's overlaid itself in the building industry, which is energy management systems or digital controls. I mean, there's no building out there, no high rise, no no hotel, no office building that doesn't have a pretty sophisticated central computer controlling everything, right? And and this was a, a, a no-brainer for it seemed like a no-brainer if you wanted to manage your energy costs that you would have control of the stuff, right? But it just didn't make it, right? Mm -hmm. People were selling energy management systems, rest, you know, equipment, computers, you know, 40 years ago, right? But it didn't make. And part of the problem was the people, the, the Honeywells of the world, the Johnson Controls, the guys manufacturing these control products for big build they didn't understand food service so oh we'll just shut your ovens off or whatever right and so they didn't have the foundation in their algorithm their algorithms they didn't have algorithms they didn't know what to control yeah you know and uh, hmm. they still hasn't made it you know it's hard to imagine uh, micro uh, apple and, and microsoft operate dozens dozens of food service facilities right and they still they're still the old school systems right you know I got yeah, to have some yeah. input on the uh, on the Apple, the new Apple building, right? But when it came to the appliances, it was still the old old look of the equipment was what drove the specifications on that one, right? Yeah, yeah. we're not done yet, Adam. And you know, keep on working, you guys. You got that didn't take your career away from you. You got a lot <laughs> of work to do. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, I was just going to say, for you know, we, we've been describing. The, the slow starts here in the industry and the challenges and so on but uh, but we are getting there when you when you when you take the the longer view um, you know the the first energy star category was uh, solid door reach in oh, refrigeration wow. I believe 2001 it was at the uh, NAFM show in Orlando. Yep. And I was I was there taking notes, and and, and so and there was a big unveiling with the idea that uh, you know Energy Star would actually have a focus in food service was kind of a cool yeah. thing. And well, it was a cool cool, you know, it was cool if you were into efficiency. It was probably less cool if you were a manufacturer that was struggling, you know, in that category. <laughs> but um, but we have we have made progress and. I forget who I was talking to last year, I think it was. Um, might have been Dave Zabrowski, actually. He said, you know, that today's Energy Star reach-in uses, I forget the exact figure, but it was roughly yeah. half yeah. the energy that its counterpart used, you know, back in the 1990s. Yeah. And a big technology so, was a solid door instead of a glass door. They put a solid door on the front. Yeah. Yeah. Or a door. Yeah. How about a door? Yeah. <laughs> Think about all the, you know, that's happened in the, in the, uh, in the, in the, in the food service in, or in the supermarket industry, right? The, the, the idea of refrigerated cabinets with no doors anymore, that's gone bye-bye, right? You, know, you talk about education, yeah. you know, and you got involved, Adam, with Energy Star, we would, we would sign up to do seminars at the NRA show, right? At the restaurant show in Chicago. And, you know, in the last few years, we would have full house at these things, right? But talk about green design and stuff. We were, we were popular. We were, we would have a standing room only in a lot of our workshops that we put on. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The awareness is so much yeah. better now than it was, you know, a couple decades yeah. ago. 
Yeah, and getting back real quick to some of the technologies, I wanted to jump yeah, into no, that's this. Good idea. And, yeah. And yeah, so you, you know, Don, you you'd listed off a yeah. myriad of of different technologies, different equipment types, and everything. Yeah. Um, I was curious, going back to your point that you made about the acquisition costs. Yeah. Um, a lot of these advanced systems that, or you know, categories that or that offer equipment that are that offer a lot of energy savings. To, to that kind of offset that that cost over the product's yeah, lifetime. Yeah. Um, where where's your what's your take? Can you speak and, and you too, Brian? Can both of you speak a little bit to where uh, things like heat recovery come into play? Where yeah, it's going to cost you a little bit more, but you know, this is like how do you message that? Ever walk into somebody's restaurant? How's your heat exchanger working in your dishwasher? Right? Like, duh. <laughs> you know? Some <laughs> stuff. You know, but just as an example, you know, when we started our PhD project, we had a, a booth at the show and, and Garland introduced and Vulcan Heart, I believe, as well, but they introduced a powered burner, you know, which was a a where the fuel air mixture was was powered, right? And and uh, it was like a Coleman stove. Well, this thing just flew. It would, you could heat a pot of water in no time, right? It was like an induction cooktop. It was, and the chefs, we had executive chefs there doing tests and they just loved it, right? But it didn't make it. It was incredible. It went, it dub, almost doubled the efficiency of a gas burner, which is about 30% efficient in heating up a pot of water. Well, it doubled it to 60%. Why did that not make it? The performance was there. But, you know, the manufacturers shot shot that one down themselves because you take the big range top guys, uh, that's a commodity. You know, the, the price you pay at a at an equipment dealer on sale for a six-burner range with oven might be $3,000, right? And, and you look at an advanced burner design, you know, six burners times 100 bucks a burner incremental cost, that's $600. So to put a... a an additional $600 on the manufacturing cost of an appliance. Well, shit, that's not going to sell. You're competing with yourself, right? And uh, so yeah. some of those good technologies never make it. And, and and back 40 years ago, turned down, you know, powered burners weren't, you know, there, there needed to be more sophisticated controls to turn the burner down, part load operation, right? Well, we've got that. There's powered burners in everything in, in the HVAC world. But not food service equipment, you know, so bye-bye, you know, so that's an example, you know. And then, you know, I was an advocate over the years to try to stimulate the manufacturer into reintroducing the powered burner. And then in walks Lee Wang with his with his power, with his uh, turbo pot with fins on the bottom. And I go, why did I think of that, right? Something that simple that <laughs> increases performance, okay. but it's still like pushing rope, right? It's a tough sell. And uh, mm -hmm. so you combine that. Uh, you, you, Adam, you had asked a question, or somebody did ask a question. Uh, you know, what's the difference between Canadian food service and U.S. food service? Right? And there's not much difference. It's the same chains operating on both sides of the border. But one of the things I noticed coming from the engineering world when I moved down to California was the the Canadian design industry, the engineering, they were more interested in, in return on investment. You could sell a heat recovery system with a five-year, four-year payback, right? Solar systems with five-year pay with, with a five-year payback. That could be sold. That couldn't be sold in, in U.S. It had to be a one-year payback or we were not going with it, right? So there was a little yeah, kind yeah. of like the Northern European countries, there was a little more effort to uh, – 
investing in, in energy saving technologies, right? You know, and, and you know what, Dan, Europe in particular has always been that way. And uh, you're more familiar with Canada than I am. But I, I know uh, yeah, there, there was a, a, an FCSI president some years ago named Ken Winch. Yep, yep. no, Ken. Yeah. And you, did yep. you know Ken? He was a wonderful, wonderful guy. And he got all the, the top commercial kitchen projects in England, uh-huh. I think, yep. you know. He did, he did the Claridge's Hotel. He did, the, he did one of the Queen's castles. And uh, he was just, he, he was the guy for doing all that stuff. And I remember doing a phone interview with him uh, overnight one time. I think it might have been about the Claridge's project. And, uh, and he said then that he'd, every kitchen he ever did was expected to last 40 yeah. years. And so when you're looking at, you know, when you're looking at things that way, and especially if you have clients with bigger budgets, right, you can do things uh, to last. And meanwhile, back here in America, it's not like that at all. And, you know, the average KFC will, you know, get the foundation scraped and rebuild the whole thing in about 30 years, right? Um, so so all the dynamics are really yeah, different. Yeah. You know, another element, and I'm not critical, but the food service consulting industry isn't near the, it doesn't near have the sophistication and professional integrity of, of the engineering community, you know, electrical and mechanical and, and structural engineering, right? Uh, there's, there's no, there's no, you don't get a four-year degree to design kitchens, right? It's, it's done on it, you know, yeah. and there's a lot of, old school type stuff that used to exist in the engineering world, but it got weeded out, right? Kickbacks and concepts like that. That's still alive and well in food service, right? Unfortunately. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a conflict yeah. of interest. Oh, yeah. Right? You and get it's... taken off. I mean, we did presentations for manufacturing groups that were putting on uh, consultant seminars, right? Which was product sales. We were the objective piece of the program, but they would put these on in Las Vegas and, buy these guys you know uh, golf outings and it was you know it was uh yeah. yeah yeah and and also we should underscore the the you know there are a lot of good consultants yeah. out there who have been fighting this same kind of thing yeah, for absolutely a long time. absolutely but but you're right in in some markets and in some cities in particular there's still too much of that stuff that yeah. goes on yeah well, we, if we could extend an olive branch to the to the consultant community, um, wouldn't you agree that they though they are an instrument? Oh, absolutely, absolutely, in, yeah. In this, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah, absolutely. And that's and that's one of, that's one of the goals that I think we all collectively mm-hmm. try to do is you know if we can help educate yeah. them, then they can help educate their customers and make yeah. better purchasing decisions, regardless if you're planning to be around for five years or forty years. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Well, you're so absolutely the job, right, Adam. But it's a it's a tough market to break getting these people believing in the in the data, and uh, it was corrupted many years ago, unfortunately. Yeah. And, um, yeah, and and again, maybe the uh, the social awareness will help because you know there was so much publicity, or was and is so much publicity around the yep. lead program yep. and awareness and sustainability in general 
so that you have young employees coming up from, you know, not just in the consulting world, but the operators too are younger and more aware. And all of that, I think, helps because it seeps into everybody around you. Oh, it had a, you know, lead had quite a, it quite had a kickstarted the industry a little bit, but it didn't sustain itself like Energy Star did. Um, it's right, and I, you know, I, and I have those kind of conversations too with yep. the lead people, uh, especially a lot of, uh, you know, very sustainability oriented uh, facilities and operations consultants who got lead certified, yep. right? And they really know that stuff, and and that's a little bit of a mismatch for food service because, um, you know, the the lead points system isn't really comprehensive where kitchen equipment is concerned, but it does have everybody moving in the right direction. So that's good. Restaurants built lead projects and they learned from them, right? And it, yeah. it served a purpose. Yeah. It was interesting. One of my last projects with Chain was McDonald's on their net zero energy project, right? And they're, the bean counters and the guys running the show, they thought that they could go from a lead building and spend a little bit more and get a net zero, right? Well, it wasn't going to happen. Right. A net zero restaurant is a big, big step from a lead building. Right. And, and you, know, you got to cover your parking oh, yeah. lot with solar. Right. You know, and and uh, and, and the cost of a, a net zero energy restaurant, when you start to look at on site renewable generation, I mean, these things got into the the incremental cost was a million and a half dollars. Well, that's the cost to build a McDonald's. Right. Well, all of a sudden, the sticker shop, I mean, they were planning to build four net zero energy restaurants in North America, right? That died immediately mm-hmm. when the cost projections for the net zero energy stores was tape, was put on the, on, the, on the docket, right? I mean, they, they had no well, idea. Sure. They thought it was going to be like another 25% premium. It didn't imagine doubling the cost. And it, that's the cost of a net zero. It's double, right? It's... You don't put yeah. solar on the roof and solar on the parking lot and all this stuff. And if you don't have on-site generation, how do you go net zero, right? You can buy it. Right, right. Uh, <laughs> I was joking with Adam. I said one of my ideas is for the for the net zero energy restaurant is, is guys with their electric vehicles come in and they and they come in and they park in a spot that would normally be where you would charge your electric vehicle, but they don't. They give power to the restaurant to partially pay for their meal. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I wanted to say one thing too, Dan. About even even just the lead program um, has done pretty well with public money, yep. basically, yep. right? U- universities, uh, uh, local, state, and federal government facilities, and so on. A few years ago, I was doing a lot of work with chains, and uh, and they also and I asked them, and I, why don't you go for lead? And of course, it was it was sort of a rhetorical question, but their point was they could cherry pick the attributes of lead that they wanted without paying for the certification. Yeah. So that that hurt leads visibility on the commercial side for sure. But I don't know that there would have been. But any there was another around. anomaly there, and that was the problem: is they could say, "Well, we're ninety percent lead." Uh, were lead equivalent, lead equivalent. That was the name. They were designing lead equivalent. Well, guess what? They weren't lead equivalent. One thing that lead had is it had a fairly uh, 
fairly yeah. developed uh, policing system. In other words, you know, if you claimed lead, you were it was an honest claim, right? But it was easy to say we got we're designing to lead equivalency, right? Because you weren't really, you know, and so, but it was such an easy statement to make, right? Oh, that's a lead equivalent building, right? And you saved all that cost, mm -hmm. right? But uh, again, it's well, oh, yeah. it's, kind of, it's kind of similar, just real quick. The you know, with the Energy Star program, why it went to a third-party certification yep. platform. Um, same. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a tough business. You know, we ran our facility like uh, like a, a not-for-profit, even though we were a little company making money, right? But we believed in the stuff, right? And uh, the Energy Star people there did too. They cared about the stuff, right? Just like the guys at the California Energy Commission, these guys are committed to their to their energy efficiency campaign, right? But you got a lot of, uh, you know, you could you got a lot of bad data, right? If you, you paid the right person to do a test on that fryer, it could be seventy percent efficient, you know. Even our world of testing, our third party testing world, was far from perfect. Yeah. One of the theories why food service is a little bit behind, well, maybe not a little bit behind the HVAC industry is maintenance yep. issues and chefs perceiving um, equipment that's not broke yep. and operating as good. And sometimes that leads to low tech. Do you, do you see that? Oh, yeah. That's just another one of the one of the variables that it plays into this, uh, you know, resistance to technology. You know, it was interesting. You worked, Dennis, on that project in Livermore, right? Or in... Uh, yeah, yeah, where um, it was yeah. induction ranges oven, and uh, efficient ovens. Huge yeah, investment yeah. in equipment at the, at, the, at the design side and a huge return on investment from his perspective, right? But just a bit of an anomaly, not that he wasn't representative of the mainstream, right? Representing a future restaurant. We, we think that's, he's representative of the future, right? And that we're going to see some changes and, and net zero and decarbonization. Some of these initiatives are going to drive some changes, right? I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm a big believer of trying to really get inside the culinary yeah. schools. Yeah. Um, yeah, because you know what, you know what, when, especially when people are being formally trained, they learn how to do it, where they learned it, when they learned it on the equipment that they were learning yeah. on. And then you go out into the commercial world, you really don't want to shake that up and start experimenting with, with a piece of equipment you don't know. So, so of course, you know, historically, a lot of, a lot of chefs lean toward gas. They lean toward certain categories of equipment. Um, and they're good at it and they get good food results. So if we're going to change that and, you know, and get into decarbonization and all of those things, I think we have to do it in the schools while they're being yeah. taught. And that's an investment that nobody really yeah. wants to underwrite, yeah. right? Because it's a long-term investment, right? And everybody wants that from right. program initiatives like Energy Star and utilities. They want the return on an on their efforts right away, right? In two years or three years. Right? Sure, it's just like the payback, right? If, if they're not getting it in a year, they don't... One of the culinary care. schools out in the New England area, I can't think which one it was, now they had all induction cooktops. And it was a huge 
huge impact on the on the culinary uh, uh, students, right? Yeah. Was that Jensen yeah, and Wales yeah, exactly. in Rhode Island? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. That was the last, hey, Don, that was the very last project I did when I left um, uh, Fisher Nickel. I, I flew out to oh, yeah. Providence and I gave a, I was on the panel there at that univer, or that culinary university, yeah. Johnson and Wales. And uh, from there, I flew to DC and started ICF huh. the next week. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But you got a lot of sense of the hurdles of stuff with energy stuff. You know, it, it's a we, we're succeeding, right? I, I like Brian's optimistic uh, uh, position that we're going to gain, and uh, and the new buzzwords, you know, net zero, and and we really do have to straighten out. You can't run, you know, restaurants are restaurants are. I've said it before, you know, they're they're five percent efficient, right, in terms of utilization of energy, right? That's the that's the electric one. The gas ones are even worse, right? But boy, we've got a long way to go on food service. And the, and the artificial intelligence and the automation, I mean, we, the, the industry dabbles, the R&D efforts of industry dabble in that area, but we haven't seen the, it's, it's going to change the world of mm -hmm. food service, I think. Right? Mm -hmm. so, so right now there's a big push for, um, there's a labor shortage yep. and I see some, chains starting to embrace some of the more automation yep. technologies. Uh, do you think that's going to lead to um, more advanced and more efficient? Yeah. And, you know, they, a lot of them played in that arena. I mean, certainly Mark Fink from Burger King, they had stories, but one of the challenges was the controls weren't there. You know, they didn't have, they weren't able to, they didn't have AI back then. Right. You know, things are going to change. You know, the fact that you don't have, You've got uh, point of sales uh, computers and stuff that are on top of everything from menu items and costs, and they don't integrate with the equipment, right? There's the equipment just doing what it wants, right? Burning, burning energy. All, you know, the standby losses are huge, right? That was one of the things that came out of that McDonald net zero was the huge parasitic burden of standby losses of appliances. You know, the concept of instant on, instant off is what they were sort of challenging the manufacturers to do right but it's a tough gig you know instant on instant off there's no induction cooktops to it right but it's a tough you know but that parasitic loss i mean that, that under fire char boiler burning away at 100,000 btus per hour while you wait for something to get thrown on it so i don't know dennis yeah. you've seen a little bit of that and you're sort of the your end work at the fstc and there's a manufacturer's efforts i mean the combi oven is a pretty sophisticated piece of equipment right uh, not much else is that sophisticated, but, uh, well, I know we're at the, um, <clears throat> at our point where we would normally, uh, yeah. conclude, but, um, before we do, I was hoping, unless Dennis, you had any, any, uh, final thoughts, I was wondering if there were any takeaways that we yeah. didn't hit on, um, for you. Well, Don I haven't Brian, got politically incorrect like yet. To share. <laughs> 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 haven't used one F word through the whole hour. I know. I, I'm very yeah. impressed, Don. I, I never thought I'd talk to you. I've never hour heard that, right? Yeah, a myriad of F words. <laughs> Why don't you yeah, just give us one so we, you can what, appease us? WFT. Yeah, you betcha. Yeah. I, I made some notes here. <laughs> what, uh, and I, you know, again, there's stuff that, uh, you know, we got uh, stuff that doesn't in the refrigeration side, you know. So he's mentioned these uh, 
phase change products, right? In a reach in, in a walk-in, right? Well, they don't do anything. They don't work, right? And, and uh, you know, one of our, our best end user clients when we were at the food service tech was, was Safeway, right? They had their engineering group down the, and you were not going to get specced for Safeway's kitchen, kitchen course, if you hadn't, if you didn't have test data from the PG&E lab, you weren't going to get specced. End of story, right? They, they just drove it, right? And, uh, we used to provide data for them. You know, the refri polarized refrigerant oil additives. You must have come across that, Adam, in your energy. You know, these were, they didn't work. They, they were like, uh, well, they didn't. Oh, well, that's a comment. A lot of these technologies that were thinly disguised as energy efficient, they didn't hurt anything, right? They really didn't hurt. You know, you put a polarized refrigerant oil additive into your refrigeration system. Well, it was just like, putting some synthetic oil in your engine, automobile engine, right? It didn't hurt and it might help a little bit. And once these manufacturers uh, made a sale to a national account, the, 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 the technical, uh, the engineer or the building manager for their chain rest, they become your best salesman because they didn't want to be seen as failing. So they became a believer in the technology even if they didn't have the data, right? So... <laughs> Oh, oh, yeah, absolutely. And then it's a matter of follow yeah. the leader. I can't tell you. I mean, you guys know better than I do, but over the years, how many stories have we heard where somebody had a, a new piece of equipment and they were knocking on doors and getting turned away? It, it gets them, takes them five years to get their foot in the door at, at a major chain. And then it's like, you know, the fate of the universe rests on whether that chain says mm -hmm. yes or no. Yep. And and then if they do say yes, then it's follow the leader and all the competitors want to take a look yep. also. But until that first one yep. goes, nobody yeah, goes. That rapid you cook know? oven technology, I mean, that was the, some of those guys just barely made it. The, um, yeah. yeah. So, yeah, we could, uh, you, you like your little write-up, Brian, you really should start a magazine. <laughs> I, I know, right? <laughs> yeah. Next venture. You guys just, you can't yeah, quit. Yeah, you can't you? quit. You're addicted to it. Yeah, so. And, and we have not talked, you know, too much really about the yeah. future. And the, the future is going to be real interesting. I don't know if we have time uh, today or if we yeah. should uh, do do a, yeah. like a part one and a part yeah. two sometime yeah. or what. Because I have to tell you what I'm seeing with the Kitchen Innovations yeah. Awards program. Uh, I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing a lot right now that's that's energy or water driven. It's really not so much about utility consumption, yeah. but there's a there's a ton of trickle down uh, technology that lends itself to you know it, it reduces labor and it re, you know improves sanitation and all kinds of things. I'm looking yeah. at. Um, ITW right now has a radio frequency oven with artificial intelligence. Um, and, and I don't know if it's, I don't remember if it's optical sensors or thermal, but there's actually communication going on. The, the, the oven is, is reading the thermal qualities of the piece of food that's yep. in there. And it's, it's adjusting its power settings to you know, a prescribed outcome, yep. and it can distinguish between different kinds of foods in the in the uh, 
the the cooking um uh what's the word i'm looking for not the not the uh, to the chamber and and get this now you can put a uh, you could put a piece of food in there and have it cooking and say it's half done it's still cooking you can open the door put something cold in there and the oven will read the circumstances of both food items and treat them both separately. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty amazing. The artificial intelligence aspect of constantly, you know, reading conditions in the chamber and making adjustments is pretty yeah. incredible. Well, there's your cost yeah. premium yeah. right there. There's not oh, a yeah. better right. integration of this stuff. You know, I mean, Richard used to hold up his cell phone and say, this thing's smarter than the average restaurant, right? And, uh, and now look at automobiles, right? <laughs> right. Look at, uh, those guys were, uh, uh, guys were uh, mining bit, Bitcoins on, out of their uh, Tesla, right? They're using their Tesla computer to mine Bitcoin, for Christ's sake. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Poof. Well, I do like the idea, um, Brian, perhaps um, <clears throat> what we would love to do is uh, maybe a part two, the, if you guys were willing, because I did. Yeah, where we're headed. Yeah, the, the future of the restaurant, and, and I want to hear more um, <clears throat> I, from you, Brian, uh, particularly your role um, with the um, with the mm-hmm. award at mm-hmm. the uh, the innovation innovative yeah. kitchen award the uh, at yeah. the uh, NRA yeah. show. So so perhaps we can do a yeah. part two, um, and we can talk about those two things. Is that is Energy Star going to have a booth at the show? Around. We're we're trying to yeah. do a workshop okay. um, like we did before uh-huh. uh, COVID, but um, we had two successful ones. And to your point back yeah. earlier, Don, you know, we you were talking about how you know in recent years you would be hosting. A, a room full yeah. of people, you know, yeah. a standing room of people. It was overflowing. And fortunately uh, we had similar participation in the first two workshops yeah. we've yeah. done there. So probably not quite as successful well, as yours, but all of them. Um, those were done in partnership with you guys. With Energy Star. You know, it was, yeah. You know, the whole, yeah. you know, part of the topic is net zero. Where does rest, where do restaurants fit? Right. Are they, uh, is it is the concept are restaurants exclusive of the concept or are we going to get there right you know one of the things with that mcdonald project we proved it was technically what feasible it was just economically almost impossible right with the model we have right now you know well mcdonald's did build a net zero restaurant in okay. florida um where yeah it was the the dining room is very small uh-huh. and it's indoor outdoor uh-huh. concept and uh the solar panels are covering most of the parking okay. lot. So yeah. there's, uh, there's that. And I know earlier we were talking about uh, going to the gym and uh, getting paid for, uh, for a workout. And I think um, they're actually utilizing um, little bikes to charge your yeah. phone. So but that energy still got, you, know, you, still have to eat, you still got to eat to charge your to run your battery, run your charger there, you know. <laughs> I thought Adam's going to have to eat steak. <laughs> Not, <laughs> Not a, a chance, chance in hell. <laughs> oh, 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 oh. Just kidding, amigo. Yeah. I know you are. Um, <clears throat> okay, good. So, Don, you, you successfully uh, checked the two boxes I was looking okay. for. Um Busting my yeah. balls a little bit yeah. and uh, yeah. and and <laughs> dropping a relatively close. Yeah, F-ball. yeah, no, so it was good. You. I meant to check that one out earlier. I just can't now. believe I'm not well behaved now. You know? 
You want to get somebody's attention in a in a government meeting. That's what you use. <laughs> yeah. I think that's the other thing about our industry, Brian. You know, at the corporate level, you know, swear words were just part of the part of the industry, right? <laughs> oh gosh, yeah, and 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 especially back in like I'm thinking of the you know like the roaring '80s yeah. and '90s when everybody would have a hospitality oh, suite, oh. and Crestcore had those you know giant. Uh, uh, they were like block parties in a hotel yeah. meeting room. Oh. You know? Unbelievable. Yeah, political correctness didn't, they didn't know what that, they didn't even, couldn't say the words. Oh, nice oh, girls. No. That's how you know you're in a food service meeting, not a exactly. food truck meeting. Oh, right? exactly. Exactly. <laughs> oh, yeah, there were some fun times, Brian. Oh, my goodness, yes. And I had, and I had, you know, I had the best job in the world because I was being paid to go attend yep. all of those yep. hospitality yep. suites. Yep. <laughs> you were the VIP, yeah. right? Oh, right. oh wow. my goodness! <laughs> yeah. Oh, okay. We'll have a we'll have a, a reflection on some of that stuff. But yeah, it was good, uh, Dennis and Adam. On it. But I think we need to put our energy take our energy now that we've reconstituted the uh, past and, and really take our experiences. Where would we do, what would we do in the next two decades, right? What's going on? What would we do? What would the industry, what's the industry doing? What do they need help with, right? Well, the yeah, I mean, that's not an easy answer, but I think we hit yeah. on a lot of the, the potential solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, just, I, I feel like every, every episode, we say this at least once, we've yeah. just scratched yeah. the surface. Yeah. There's just so much yeah. more to do. And, you know, it's think tanks like uh, like you and Brian and Dennis, of course, and so many others that really yeah. Yeah, push yeah, the no, envelope, uh, move it to the next level. Congrats on your initiative, so, guys. It's, it's a good one. You don't, you don't, I've often said that, you don't get paid for everything you do. There's lots of things you do for fun and, and the world. And, you know, that's uh, that's reality. That's, I, I'm doing a lot of pro bono shit now, right? Or, all of it is, right? But I like it, right? You know? Well, and, and here's something I want to suggest. And I know we have to sign off and we have to go, but you you have heard Don and I talking tonight. Just one time, I'd like to reverse this. I'd like to interview you guys and talk about what you've been doing, because I know it's been interesting. Well, you know, that, that, that's, a good, that's a good leverage point for the restaurant of the future, right? You guys have come into this industry midstream and, and you know, the, it's it's up to you guys to to secure the goals of what what's needed right you're there you're not dropping out right away you know unless dennis is going to live in the bus neither you know. this is this is the relay race right <laughs> yeah yeah i love it i think this is a good idea dennis we have um we have a good i think uh uh plan for for a, a yeah. follow-up a, a follow-up uh sounds good here we'll we'll, we'll uh, interview each other and, and see where it's going yeah absolutely Okay, sign her off there, Dennis, and we'll follow up with what you need. Yeah, well, uh, great having both of you on the podcast. I'm looking forward to more conversations. And yeah, this has been another episode of Fried Friday. Yeah, I'm Fried Friday. Okay, good. I appreciate it. I enjoyed it. Yeah, very much. Thanks very much, guys. Thank you.